I am one of the elders here at Sierra Bible Church, and it is uh, my pleasure and privilege to be with you this evening as we start in our Prothemia series um, to take systematic theology and do it in chunks. So we have, or I have prepared a couple of uh, blocks or chunks uh, that we'll work through over the next couple of months. The first, uh, first block is going to be on the study of the Bible. When it comes to systematic theology, basically take whatever it is that you're studying and then put ology on the end of it. That's how theology works. So theology is the study of theos, the study of God, bibliology, the study of the Bible, angelology, the study of angels, etc., etc. Sometimes we change the word, uh, or most of the times we have like the Greek version of the word before ology. But we're going to work the first block um, on the study of the Bible. And the primary reason for that is that if you're going to approach systematic theology, you need to first establish how are we going to look at theology? What's going to be our source for truth? How are we going to determine what a right answer is and what a wrong answer is? Because if we don't have some type of authoritative guide for how we understand theology, then ultimately we're left to our own opinions. Now, I don't know how, um, how highly you think of yourself, but I know myself well enough to know that my opinion is not worth a whole lot until it's been compared with an authoritative source. So anytime you study systematic theology, they typically have a section where they call prolegomena. We're going to kind of shoot right over prolegomena. But uh, what prolegomena is, is kind of establishing how we, do a th uh, how we do theology. And then if you study systematic theology in a conservative environment, which essentially Sierra Bible Church is, there's a spectrum. I'm not saying conservative is right or whatever the case is, but we on the spectrum are closer on the conservative side of Christendom. And if you study it from within a, Christ, uh, a, uh, a conservative perspective, you end up first needing to establish that if we're going to study theology, we need that authoritative source. And that authoritative source is found in the Bible. So we're going to spend the next three weeks going through the study of the Bible or bibliology. Now, if you haven't been here through a Prothemia series before, welcome. Uh, I am glad that you have come, and I am glad that you are here. Let me lay out what's going on right now, just real quickly. Um, this is not a sermon series. Uh, it's not uh, a worship service, although uh, when we offer ourselves to God and uh, our minds to God, he finds it as an acceptable or a reasonable act of, of worship, uh, which we learned from Romans. But this is uh, much more of a, a, a time in which we can hopefully train you, take you in your relationship with God, wherever they, that may be, and try to push it just a little bit farther as we almost scholastically or academically look at some topics. So that means this is much more like a classroom environment. So the nice thing about a classroom environment is that it's the safest place to be wrong. You're allowed to be wrong in here because as we come here recognizing our weaknesses and praying that the Spirit would shore up those weaknesses, this is a great place to be wrong and to recognize, I don't know about X, Y, or Z, and that's okay. This is also a great place to ask questions, to interact with people around. 
Um, I am going to be kind of dumping a bunch of information each time we get together, but that does not mean that I have the intention to be the only one in the room who is talking. I personally, if you've ever heard a recording of your own voice, you've probably had this experience. I personally hate the sound of my own voice. And I live in a perpetual recording where I can actually hear the sound of my own voice as I'm talking to you. And I hate the sound of it. So my, my general goal... Oh, well, thank you. You're just being, you're being inappropriately kind. But... <laughs> But it's not my goal to be talking the whole time. That being said, I also want to establish that I am by no means, by no means, the master of any of the information that I will provide to you. Let me admit to you straight up front that I might be wrong about something. I, I might say something wrong. I might even say something. When you talk about theology, I might even, hopefully unintentionally, but I might even say something heretical that would need to be corrected. I want to just throw that out there ahead of time, that just because I say something, that might not be the official position of Sierra Bible Church. Uh, we're trying to study through something, and, ine and inevitably, when we recognize our weakness, we open up the possibility that we might be wrong about it, we might need some correction, and, and we're working through this together. That's why we lean on the Spirit. That's why I started our evening by praying that the Spirit would be here and be present and trying to guide us to truth. But if something sounds a little bit off, let's talk about it. If you don't want to talk about it in front of the whole room, that's fine. We can talk about it afterwards. I love talking about this stuff. This is not what I get paid to do anymore uh, for a little while. I did get paid to do it. Uh, but now I get to do it for free because I do some other stuff to earn money. So I love doing this stuff and will gladly stay as long as possible. That being said, the goal is to try to keep this around like a manageable chunk of about an hour to an hour and a half, somewhere in there. So that for those of you for whom this is like labor intensive, that you'll kind of have that natural break of just going, oh my gosh, I need to go home and soak my brain and in, I don't know, a jacuzzi or whatever it is you soak your brain in. But that being said, feel free to ask questions. Not saying that I'm the authority. I love to have interaction. I know that some of this will be information that might seem too much, but the goal is to try to introduce you to a lot of these ideas. Uh, we were talking ahead of time uh, about my, my main goal is to try to introduce you to these ideas because when I was first introduced to them, it took me from a place of thinking that I had a major handle on this, I was the master of this, and it showed me how much I don't know, which will kind of give you more space and time to reach out in your relationship with God to pursue this. Because I don't know if you're aware of this, or even, I mean, maybe you don't agree with me on this, but this world isn't our home, and the time in which we are currently living is not the only time in which we will live. At some point, we're going to transition into eternity. Once you exist, you, ex you exist eternally, which means we will have millennia of millennia to be somehow fathoming the nature of God. We will have plenty of time to work on this, okay? So I think we'll probably still have some time to grow and stretch, and it's okay to recognize that we might not get everything on the very first time we're introduced to it. Okay, so that's kind of the ground rules. Um, please feel free uh, to ask questions and let's interact. That being said, 
the simplest way to take everything I've just babbled about for about 10 minutes and hone it down into one sentence is that please talk with me. Let's study together. And if I ask a question, I want an answer. Ready? Excellent. You, you passed the test right off the bat. Right off the bat. Okay. So bibliology. Uh, for, oh, I should also say because we're, we found that there are a lot of people that want to uh, listen to this online. Uh, we are recording this. Don't worry um, about being on the recording. But if you do ask a question and then I seem to restate your question or repeat it, it's so that the listeners at home can stay with us through the whole process. Okay? It's not because I'm that weird. I am actually that weird, though. Um, so for bibliology, as I looked at the study of the Bible, the biggest thing I wanted you to walk away with this evening is to recognize that beyond anything else that you could possibly find in the physical universe, the Bible is special. There's a reason why we often refer to it as the Holy Bible, because the Holy Bible indicates that it, is, it, it, it has a special purpose, and there is something unique about Scripture that I want to talk about this evening. So I'm going to introduce to you why I, why I believe that the Bible is so unique in anything else that you might find in the physical universe. Let's talk about the word Bible as we start off. Oh, and there are um, fill-in things here. This will not be quizzed. Uh, there's no tests. Uh, this is just for those of you that are not used to the lo-fi universe where there's not PowerPoint slides and videos and song and dances. It, this is basically just to help you focus. If you don't, if you don't want to fill in blanks, great. Don't fill in blanks. That's fine. If you want to write more, than the, that's fine too. This is just to try to kind of help you track along. So let's talk about the, even the word Bible as we're starting. Bi the word Bible is actually, um, we get our word as a transliteration ultimately from the Greek word biblia, which just means collection of books or books together. And that's indeed what we find in the Bible, a collection of books. Um, it is referred to within as probably two different types of things. So point 1A, the first thing, it's referred to within as scripture. Now, we're going to have a lot of Bible references as we go through systematic theology because, at least in my view, uh, the systematic theology needs to be based upon the scriptural text. And so there's going to be a lot of times in which we're going to be looking up passages. Um, I encourage you to look those passages up with me, although I have written the references down in abbreviated form so that if you're not a fast Bible turner, you didn't do the Awana sword drills. Anybody remember the Awana sword drill? That's old school churchology right there, uh, where you like got stickers from how fast you could turn to a passage. Anyway, uh, we will be looking at a lot of passages this evening, so just prepare your fingers for the paper cuts now. It is referred to within as scripture. The other reference um, that seems to pop up all over the place, and these references uh, are by no means exhaustive, but the other one in 1b, it's also referred to within as the, quote, word of God or word of the Lord. 
What's significant about this term, word of, specifically if you were to write down word of the Lord, I don't know if you've ever noticed before as you're reading through an English text that they sometimes will write the word Lord in lowercase letters, and sometimes they'll write the word Lord in all capital letters, almost like the typesetter accidentally pushed the caps lock when they wrote out that term. But that's actually specifically done. Uh, I won't bore you for the whole long story as to why that's the case, but whenever you come across the all caps version, what they're trying to convey is the word that we also don't know how to pronounce in, uh, in the Hebrew language of Yahweh, the name that God uses to identify himself to uh, Moses. When Moses goes, who should I tell the people that you're sending me to? God's response is, tell them, I am who I am, or I am that I am, or I will be that which I will be. Tell them, I am. Yahweh is who sent you, which is why it's so significant all throughout John that Jesus keeps saying, I am something, I am something, I am something. We'll get to that when we get to Christology, the study of Christ. But it is referred to as the word of the Lord. This is significant because the Bible believes itself, if the Bible was a person, uh, I'm, I'm going to anthropomorphize this book right here. And I'm sorry if I say some giant word like anthropomorphize right there. I really, I legitimately do not intend to do it. You know, like those people that like accidentally say the F word and they don't realize that they're saying the F word because they've just said it for so long. Right. I, and they don't even know that I, I unfortunately spent a long time in an academic environment. And these these big words just trip out of my mouth. It's not to try to like make myself look special. I'm really sorry. And so if I say something, you're like, what is that word? Give me a funky look. And I'll be like, oh, I got to define that word. OK, but if the Bible was capable of belief, the Bible or what it indicates about itself is that Yahweh is speaking in this book. Inherently, what that starts to tell us is that these, the words that are in the pages here are the words of a specific God. These are not the words of Allah. These are not the words of, um, of the angel Moroni. These are not the words of anyone else other than a very specific God, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, who later was revealed to us in Jesus Christ. It is important to recognize that the Bible has already set itself apart. That's what that word holy means. Already set itself apart from where else you might find words. And it has a specific purpose behind it. To introduce you to just kind of the general flow of the Bible, let me unpack for you a very general outline of how the Bible is laid out that shows us its various purposes. 2A. 2A. First... It is a history of Israel, a history of Israel, the people of God. We primarily find those books in Genesis through Esther. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those are often referred to as the Torah, the first five books. But then they go on into the historical books, the books of Samuel and Chronicles and Estra, I'm sorry, Ezra and Nehemiah, etc. They're, they're listing off the history of Israel, how they got their start and how they got to where they are. Then in point B, <clears throat> there's kind of a transition in the Old Testament uh, where we see the revelation of God's message to Israel. 
the revelation of God's message to Israel. And we primarily find this in what's referred to as the wisdom literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Those are kind of known as the wisdom books of God revealing truth to his people. And then it moves on to the prophetic books, the really long ones like Isaiah and Jeremiah, all the way on down to the short ones like that Italian prophet Malachi at the end. Have you, do you know Malachi? Yep. He's, he's there at the end. And the other ones that are fun to say like Habakkuk and Zephaniah, Malachi. That's, sorry. <laughs> Looks like Malachi. All right. I'm glad. See, that, that was good. I saw some, cra some weird looks showing me you weren't on the same page. Let's get it back on the same page. Yeah, get your rocks ready, man. You, you're going to stone me and not in a good way. Uh, all right, so C, there's, a, there's then a transition in which we don't have biblical works that are covering about 400 years uh, span. And then we start to get in point C, the history of the gospels spread, the gospels spread, and that's gospel apostrophe S, not that there are multiple gospels, but the gospel apostrophe S, the spread of the gospel through Jesus. And we see that in the New Testament history books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, where we're starting to describe out who is Jesus and what the heck was he about and what did that do to this small ragtag band of Jews that then were used by God to change the civilized world and ultimately the, the, the globe as a whole. Then what we see during that process, finally in point D, is letters of guidance for an emerging church. And I don't use that in the, if you've studied theology at all, I don't use that in the formal term of the emergent church. I mean the emerging church, the group of people that were brought to the message of Jesus through, the, through that message of the disciples. They were guided along through a bunch of letters. And what that uh, then laid out for them is the guidance of what it would look like to follow Jesus in light of all this Jewish history that they were familiar with. So that's kind of the generalized purpose of each of the kind of the major chunks of the Bible. That being said, why do we even have those chunks the way that they are? Why do we have the Bible at all? Uh, there are probably a variety of ways in which you could unpack this question. I'm going to answer in three different ways. Or actually, I'm going to answer in two different ways, but it requires first kind of a moment of pause to see a difference between general and special revelation. If you were with me during the section in which we discussed uh, apologetics, I introduced you to the reality of general and special revelation. We are going to look at a couple of these passages briefly. Um, Keep your finger in Psalm 19 because we're going to look at it and then we're going to leave it and then we're going to come back to it. Uh, but in Psalm 19, we see statements like this. <clears throat> Psalm 19, starting in one, the heavens talking about the skies declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. 
but their voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun. You can stop there. What the psalmist is talking about here is the same thing. Keep your finger there. Go over to Romans 1.19. Romans 1.19. This is where we talked about it in the apologetics standpoint or from the standpoint of apologetics. But in Romans 1.19, Paul starts talking about this general revelation of God. It says this. Actually, let's back it up and start at 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What? What does that mean? Ah, I'm glad you asked. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been what made physical stuff that surrounds you, the physical stuff of this world. And Paul concludes that as a result of this, that they are without excuse. What the Bible believes is that just due to the nature that is outside that door, just due to the skies and the handiwork and the mountains and the seas, and even the beauty of looking at the smile of a child and what you learn from love in our interactions from one another, that you can learn about God. This is known as general revelation because everyone, generally speaking, is exposed to this idea. This is contrasted against special revelation because what we have to ask of general revelation is, is it enough? Paul says general revelation is enough to show everybody that they have to be pursuing the maker of everything that's out there. That's ultimately what Paul says. But in both of these passages, we recognize that, that general revelation was never meant to be all that we got. And here's why I believe that. Go back to Psalm 19. In Psalm 19, after talking about how the heavens declare God's glory, etc., etc., then the psalmist changes his tone when he gets to verse 7. What are the first two words? The law. the law. If you've studied it all in the Old Testament, you realize that, that those two words together is a proper term. The, re the reference to the law is the actual reference to how God revealed himself in the first five books of Scripture. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Torah. The law. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Oh, my friends, I wish that people would recognize that wisdom would truly be found in God alone. Because we are on, we are on heavy supply. I was saying in a short conversation I had with somebody today, we seem in our culture like at no time ever in the human history, we have access to information like never before, and yet we seem to lack wisdom nonetheless. It's scary. 
We have lots of little know-it-alls that don't know how to do anything that's important to life. I am their chief. <laughs> but Paul, flip back over to Romans and look at Romans 15. In Romans 15, verse 4, Romans 15, verse 4, Paul writes this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the what? Scriptures. Scriptures we might have hope. Paul starts to talk, this is by, by no means the only place in which this is discussed, but as he introduces his idea at the beginning of Romans that general revelation has been given to all. By the end of the book, he's talking about how the scriptures have been the blessing given to mankind to be able to guide them, the guidance that they truly need. And so is general revelation enough to understand God? I would say that God would not think so, generally speaking. That's why God set out to give us special revelation. Go ahead. I would say that now that is the easiest way to find that. There was a period of time in which that was uh, transmitted verbally uh, because we've talked about Jewish oral tradition. We're, we'll refer to it again. Um, so it's not inherently written, but it's specifically spoken and communicated. Whereas general revelation is found in the experience of what's around you. Special revelation is always inherently verbal and has some type of informational content as part of it. Good question. Good question. Anything else? I know I've been slamming on the accelerator. I'm sorry, but we got, we, we got miles to go before we sleep. So that being said, if you understand that idea, you can recognize pretty quickly uh, in, uh, let's see, where are we at? In point 3B, the need to supplement the conscience. The need to supplement the conscience. My friends, we're so confused, and when I say we, I mean human beings, we seem to be so confused about what's right and wrong that we, we actually have gotten so far now to believe that there is no such thing as right and wrong. It, for a long time, we were just confused about what was right and what was wrong. Now we've gotten so confused that we've, we, we now believe this ridiculous idea that there is no such thing as right and wrong. We need to supplement our conscience, which used to be the guide, right? Jiminy Cricket, let your conscience be your guide, is, right? Was it Jiminy Cricket or was it the fairy? I don't know. Well, old school, it was Jiminy Cricket. Okay, thank you for the Disney confirmation. Uh, the conscience needs to be supplemented. Looking back at Romans 1, we've already seen the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Supre it's not that they don't recognize the truth. Notice the words that are used. They suppress it. They look it straight in the face and go, no, not going to believe it. Not going to believe it. They're suppressing the truth. Our conscience is broken. Look at what uh, Paul writes in verse 21. Although they knew God, they did not honor him. 
They didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. That's the very nice way of saying they became stupid. And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, which no one even likes, unless you're some weird snake lover, right? Our conscience, which, used to, which is a phenomenal tool and can be restored, needs supplementation. Because, point two, axiomatic truth is being traded for relativism. An axiom is something that everybody used to be able to hear and just go, well, obviously that's true, right? It, it would be an axiom that if I trip, I'm going to fall because gravity always exists, unless you're some weird physicist that's capable of arguing otherwise, right? Or, or we have things, the only thing that's for sure in this life or death and taxes or whatever axiom you want. These general statements that used to just be known as generally true, they're being traded for relativism. Let me show you the three main ones in which I see this on a daily basis. Number one, biological truth. Basic biological truths seems to somehow have slipped everybody's mind. And now there are arguments about what a gender even is, and that there's a possibility of there being seven genders. My friends, I don't mean to alienate anybody. Everyone is welcome to come, but you must come with the concept that there is a right answer to your questions. And sometimes that means that what you want to be true is, is not true. I'm sorry, there are not seven genders. When God revealed mankind, and we'll study this when we study the theology of mankind, God was very explicit in his description that he made them male and female. It wasn't a list of seven, it was made a list of two. Biological truths are being thrown out the window. Even scarier, though, is moral truth. And I want to be very clear, and I'm going to even repeat myself just as a matter of of uh, being pragmatic when we leave this door, I do mean that this is even scarier. There are plenty of Christians that are freaking out about this idea that people are arguing about what genders there are or what sexuality humans express. My friends, that is a big deal. There is a right and a wrong there, but there's far more important things that need to be addressed. The concept of moral truth being thrown out, the concept that there is no right and wrong is inherently dangerous. It is completely pervasive in our society and it is unraveling the very things that you and I have taken for granted since we were little kids to the extent that my grandchildren will be in a world that will be so confused, I have no idea how they're going to be able to make a decision because they will, have, they will have effectively destroyed morality through multiple generations. And as a result, because we've traded in those two things in increasing severity, what we're starting to see, and we couldn't even understand, or I have a hard time understanding why this is the case, but point C, that logic itself has been traded. We no longer use logic. Instead, we use things like volume, 
I don't have to have a logical point as long as my point's louder than yours. As long as in the argument I can make you look foolish because I am a, a stronger voice in society. We've traded logic for majority opinion. Is the majority sometimes wrong? Yeah. And if you study mankind, you actually would probably be able to make the argument that the majority is often wrong, not just sometimes So way to ask a question that would take an entire uh, month to unravel. But does, I, I will answer it simply this way. Um, I think, uh, and we talked about this in the apologetics course, in order to even be able to establish the concept of free will, you must assume that God exists and that there is a spiritual reality. And so the very fact that you and I have free will points us to the reality of God's existence. And does that then set up our opportunity to reject God? I think inherently so. And all of it stems not from the free will. The free will was the vehicle through which the primary problem was rejection. What Paul said in Romans 1, that even though they had the glory of God facing them, they did not recognize him as God and instead turned and worshiped things crawling on the ground. The rejection is the core problem. Free will provided the opportunity for the rejection to happen. That would be my quick answer to the question. <clears throat> oh, thanks. <laughs> All right, so... Um, the last one, and this is probably the biggest one that I want to drive home, is that we've traded logic for rancor. It's not a commonly used word because we don't understand that this is an unacceptable method of arguing. But I've seen Christians and non-Christians use it alike, that instead of actually discussing the idea, we attack the people proposing the idea. Philosophers refer to this as an ad hominem argument, that we don't actually argue about the idea. Can a completely lost servant of Satan still tell you something that's true? Yes. We don't throw it out the window just because somebody whose father is Satan, which Jesus says you're, only, you're on one side or the other, right? So that's why I'm saying it so strongly. Can they speak the truth? Yes. Are you, because you are a Christian, inherently right? No. no. So good to hear you say that. And you probably should look at yourself in the mirror and recognize, I'm probably going to say a bunch of stuff that's wrong today. Right? And that's the beauty of the gospel. Not that you're always right, but that for all of those times you will be wrong, you will be forgiven, and mercy will be there to pick you up and sweep you off and get you on your feet again. That's the beauty of the gospel. But in these conversations that are happening, why logic has been traded is we can't even have them anymore because we're too busy accusing one another instead of actually discussing the idea. The church ought to be a place of diverse political opinion, but it seems like it's very unsafe to discuss politics in church because we start to attack ourselves for being aligned with certain people. No, stop that type of conversation. That has led us in a completely dangerous direction where we can't even discuss ideas anymore because logic is unavailable. What are we trying to prove? What are we trying to prove? Yeah, I, I don't know. Ultimately, it seems to be, at least when it's me, I'm trying to prove 
that uh, I'm closer to God's knowledge than you are, right? That I'm closer to, I'm better than you. So this is, that's why our conscience needs supplementation, because these trade-offs are happening all throughout our society. But ultimately, if I were to point to, if I had to pick one reason for the Bible, one reason alone, if I had to, it would be point C, that the Bible is showing us the importance of the gospel as restoration to God. My friends, I'm going to make a pretty, a pretty clear distinction, a pretty quick distinction, and I don't mean to try to alienate anyone by doing it. But I love this morning that we discuss the cross because the cross is crucial to our understanding. But if your understanding of the gospel is what happened on the cross, you are at step one of 400 billion. Okay? The cross was necessary, but the cross was step one in God being able to restore mankind to himself in the face of their rejection. The cross was necessary, but it's, it's got to go beyond the cross in your understanding of what's got, what God is doing. And when you actually dive into the Bible, not just looking for passages that talk about the crucifixion, but instead read the entirety of its scope in large chunks, you realize that the cross indeed was crucial because that was the method through which God restored mankind to himself, but that was part of a much bigger picture and a much bigger story of restoration, that we were in need of being saved. And the Bible is God's story of how that came about. And the Bible itself tells us of of that importance. If you're still in Romans, you can flip over to Romans 10 and see this passage. In Romans 10, you run across uh, verses 14 and 15. Paul saying this, "How, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent, as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. That somebody has to tell people the information of God's restoring plan in order for people to hear about it. They've got to hear. It's, could God put you in a circumstance where all of a sudden you became uh, just aware of God's restorative information? Yeah, that's, that's logically possible, but that's not the way that God has set up the world. Instead, he wants it to come through the content and the message of other people. And Jesus makes this pretty clear if we start to unpack this, because everybody would love to hang on to Jesus, but they'd like to throw out the Bible in the church. When you look at John 15, you see that unfortunately you're not going to be able to do that very well. In this famous vine and branches passage in John 15, Jesus says some radical things that make people feel uncomfortable sometimes, but let's take Jesus' words for what they are. John 15, starting in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Does Jesus love you unconditionally? 
Yes, he does. He can't stop himself from loving you. But how do you get to live in that love on a moment-by-moment basis? How do you get the joy that this world is screaming for outside and coping with pharmaceutical drugs or illegal drugs or sex or rock and roll or whatever it is that they're, they're trying to reach out for joy? How do you get it? Remaining in Jesus' commandments. That's what Jesus himself said. If you don't have the content of Jesus, you can't have that love and joy as part of your life. Look at what he says a little bit further in 14 and 15. Are you a friend of Jesus? Well, Jesus says in verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. You want to be Jesus' friend? Jesus is my friend right? You want to be that guy? You actually need to follow what he says, right? Jesus is a little bit more than that little icon that you would stick on your dash with him pointing at you with a thumbs up. I I didn't do it correctly, right? Have you seen that? I love that Jesus because that Jesus is true, but that's like that, that's like version 1.0 of Jesus infinity point There's so much more to him. And if you want to remain in his love, if you want to act like his friend, you're actually going to need to know what he commands you. Verse 15. You no longer do. Oh, no longer do I call you servants. Whoa, whoa, that's weird, Right. We're typically used to, even in conservative Christianity, calling ourselves servants of Jesus. What's the distinction that he's making? No longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends, for all that I've heard from my father I have made known to you. Content, communication, the transition of people as servants of God to friends of God comes through content. It comes through special Revelation. Why do we have the Bible? Because we wouldn't be able to have the joy of living in Jesus' commands without it. We wouldn't be able to know the restoring story of God without it. As a result, we would be lacking something significant. That's why I I would point to that as probably being the primary issue, the importance of the gospel as restoration to God. So, Point four will act as the transition in a moment. Question. I kind of have some problems with what you're saying. Okay. Because I don't, even when I'm out of the will of God, I know I'm out of the will of God and I'm a sinner. I've become, I, there's still a certain joy because my Father in heaven will forgive me, even though I'm not in the, I'm not walking in his commandments. And it's not like I'm, oh, I'm taking for granted God's love and I'm going to go out and sin. It's just that you come to the realization that, yeah, you've sinned and you've been through that. But, and there you are in that sin, but thank, praise God, your Heavenly Father's going to forgive you even though you're not in His will. And there's joy in that. I don't have a problem with that. Do you feel like that conflicts with the idea? Somewhat in that you're saying that we have to be walking in the commandments. And I don't think that we always have to spend every single moment of if I can't spend every moment of my day walking in the Maybe you can. I don't know. I don't. Okay, so here's, here's the beauty. I'm not going to try to restate that very long point 
um, for those of you listening in inter internet land. But ultimately, what we're discussing right now is how much joy do you want as part of your life? Joy is not, um, joy is not a light switch where it's on or off, on or off, on or off. Joy is a dimmer switch where it's, you can have a little bit, right? I mean, especially as we start to, maybe this will be a bad example. I don't know precisely where your tastes are, but there's, there's difference between um, getting a quarter of a chocolate bar that's really good chocolate and sitting down to an exquisite meal with people who are wonderful company. There are, the joy of biting into a small amount of chocolate is, is there. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Chocolate's a wonderful thing, right? Please don't stone me for that. But the question is, could you have more? And I'm not just talking about more chocolate. I'm talking about more of the experience of the few seconds that go away from that fleeting nature of taking that small nibble of chocolate versus the few hours of joy that come from an exquisite meal with wonderful company. We're just talking about food and people at that point. If you continue to drive it through on the dimmer switch and continue to turn the dimmer switch farther up and farther up, the longer and the better and the more astute you are at following the commands of Jesus, the more fulfilling that joy will be and the more um, extensive and uh, the experience of that joy will be greater. And that's why as we grow in our relationship with God, what we find is as we plumb the depths, recognizing that there's more and more to understand, we fall deeper into connection with God and find ourselves um, reflecting his image even more as we're exposed to more and more of that joy. So can you experience it uh, in the midst of disobedience? Yes, you, you can. But the the goal would be, can you drive it a little bit farther? Can you move it a little bit more down the road? And the closer that you, uh, the closer that you are in the obedience of the commandments of Christ, the more of that joy you will experience. That would be how I would respond to you. I don't think our ideas are conflicting with one another. I think it's probably a way in which we, we could probably better flesh out our ideas. But I think what I would want to drive back to is that both of our ideas are very different than how the world outside that door would find joy or attempt to find joy. And that's what I really want to drive home, is that the means by which they will look for joy, be it getting wonderful turns down powdered hills, or I don't speak ski, I'm sorry, or you know mountain biking or whatever the case may be, they're searching for it in some other way, but what they're getting is a couple of bites of a chocolate bar when a world of wonder awaits them. Anything else? Certainly. And that's, that would go back to my point of the, the need for supplementing what we would pick up from general revelation. When we, when we miss, we miss it. That's why God, we talked to, for a whole evening on the problem of pain and suffering when we did the apologetic series. And ultimately what it pointed down to is that God uses pain to draw us back to himself. Um, so certainly I'm with you that the bumps in the road uh, are, are what shows me my need for God. So that being said, 
we find that the Bible uniquely provides for these needs and stands against any other source claiming to be the Word of God. That's what makes the Bible so unique. I'm going to quickly go over the next chunk because I covered it more in detail in the apologetic section. However, I recognize that not everybody was here for the apologetic section. Uh, and so uh, it, if you want more discussion on this, stop me along the way or we can talk afterwards, whatever the case is. But this, one, this next section is going to go by pretty quickly. But while we're pointing out the uniqueness of the scripture, I think we need to take a look at some of the indications beyond what we've already discussed of why scripture is so unique. Number one, we look at uh, the bibliographical or the manuscript reliability of scripture. So we look at the manuscript point one, the manuscript evidence. The manuscript evidence, the New Testament alone, and here's my caveat that I gave the last time, I'm gonna primarily support um, the argument of this uniqueness from the New Testament documents. Number one, because that's where I've spent more time and money studying is the uh, reliability of the New Testament as a historical source. But number two, after you establish the New Testament as a reliable historical source, that then allows you to take the word seriously of the people recorded in the New Testament and you recognize that those people took for granted the historical reliability of the Old Testament as well. So, uh, that being said, the New Testament has over, uh, this is point A, 20,000 manuscripts, 20,000 manuscripts dating within 30 to 300 years from the time in which they were written. So over 20,000 manuscripts dating from within 30 to 300, er, 300 years. That may not necessarily sound like a whole lot when we're on an information superhighway, but if you compare it to sources of history that would be around that time frame as a point of comparison, the earliest copies of Plato and Tacitus and Euripides and Aristotle are based, if I'm generous, on 10 copies dating approximately 100 to 50, I'm sorry, 1,000 to 1,500 years from the time in which they were originally authored. The, the next closest thing than the New Testament is the Iliad written by Homer, for which we have somewhere around the neighborhood of 700 copies written about 500 years, or the oldest one that we have is about 500 years from the time in which Homer wrote it out. Compare that to the New Testament, where the person writing some of those things, the, the documents we currently possess are only 30 years after that, to the extent that some of the humans that were there to see the things that were recorded were still alive. That's significant. So what are some of the documents that are in that kind of ultra, call it, that 30 to 60, you know, first hundred year range? Um, like what parts of the New Testament are within that range? We found fragments uh, of the Gospel of John. Uh, we have uh, John, for whatever reason, uh, is some of the oldest stuff. And I think it's because John probably uh, died the latest um, and wrote the latest. So, and, and the groups to whom he was writing uh, preserved them in an environment that was really used to preserving. A lot of them that we found were in Egypt, an area known for its preservation. So a lot of John's letters and gospel are some of the oldest ones that we found. Um, <clears throat> let's talk more about that later if you want to dive more into that topic. Uh, 
Next point, textual, textual criticism in the New Testament record. Textual criticism is the science of trying to figure out, do we have what was originally written when we open up the pages of this book? Do we have what John actually wrote down, what Mark actually wrote down? And the textual critics are the ones that have the method by which they determine if we, or how close is the version that we have to what they actually have. So the current working manuscript of the New Testament, it is in the, and I'm being very generous and moderate in the number that I'm giving here, but there's kind of a disagreement of what this would be. So I'm going to be very, I'm, I'm going to be, uh, very careful. We have in the high 90%, high 90% that what we have is what was written. Some estimations would put that somewhere in the neighborhood of even as high as 98%. The lower estimations would indicate that it's about 93%. I know that may seem somewhat problematic when you're used to what we deal with on a daily basis with the internet source of information and the way in which things were printed. But in terms of historical documents, we don't have anything even close to that ballpark's neighborhood. How many of these sections contain crucial matters of the faith? Uh, let me look at the number. Let me look at the, oh yeah, zero. <laughs> zero. So within that, even in your conservative estimate of 92 to 93%, the stuff that textual critics are looking at, I'm sorry, did you have something important to discuss? <laughs> Do you have something to share with the class? <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, thanks for that, actually. Um, that whatever, that whatever the rest of that percent is, is what contains all of our crucial, crucial theological points. Don't be sorry. Yes, yes. Um, the, the question was, has this been established by both secular and religious individuals? Obviously, the religious individuals are a little bit more motivated to, to put together this information, but it's been verified by secular historians and secular textual critics as well. Uh, so it's not just like some uh, hyper-religious person working in a cave. This is uh, one, of the, one of the foremost authorities. His name is Bruce Metzger. Uh, that we had to read a bunch of his books in school. But th that guy is kind of the go-to guy for establishing the veracity of historical documents and using the test that they use elsewhere. It's Metzger that actually points out that there's nothing even close to the New Testament in what it can be or in what supports it from the historical documents and how much of it is clearly what was originally written. Uh, and it's significant for us, theologically speaking, to move beyond those secular authorities to recognize that zero of those. What's that? Uh, a variety of places throughout the world in terms of the original. You're talking about the original manuscripts that we have. Yeah, we don't. And I need to be clear. We don't have any original manuscripts like we don't have the papyrus that John himself wrote on. That's where we're talking about the 30 to 300. What we have is copies that as we date those copies are within that time frame. And they're stored in museums and archives uh, throughout the world. Um, okay. 
Point C, then what we see after all of these significant indicators is that the New, New, the New Testament has some significant internal significance. Um, point one, New, the New Testament is either history or personal letter. That's all that's there. It's either history or personal letter. And based upon that, what we're looking at when it comes to the New Testament's significance is the historical components. The history, point two, is supported by eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony. The New Testament history is claimed to be written by either witnesses themselves or the friends of the witnesses. Okay, so as we look at that, let's just kind of, and I'm going to go through this section real quick because this is much more apologetic in nature. But in New Testament history, if what they're writing is written by either witnesses or the followers of those direct eyewitnesses, we have to say that there's, there's some difficulty in trying to establish that what they wrote down is false. If they were lying, it remains significant to indicate that from history we have known that all of the authors that we're aware, that we're aware of, because we're not aware of every single author, but all of the authors that we are aware of went to their death because of what they believed. So they could have been deluded, but realistically speaking, if you talk to a psychologist today, the idea of a mass delusion is pretty difficult. It, it's, it can't be substantiated. It's not a psychologically known phenomenon where that many people are deluded by the same idea. It just it doesn't exist in the study of psychology. And for them to believe it so firmly that they were willing, in most cases, most cases, to be tortured before they were killed. That's pretty difficult to establish that they were lying if they were willing to endure torture before their death. But what, what is even more significant is recognizing that if they were claiming to be eyewitnesses, contrary eyewitnesses could have spoken and shot down the stories, right? If we're talking about the time frame of sometimes in close to 30 years in which this stuff is originally written, there were still people around. They'd be like, no, no, that's not what happened. I was there. What happened was actually this, but that's not in fact what happened at all. These people wrote down what they saw because they saw what actually happened and what we have in their writings about it accurately reflects what actually happened. It's also important to recognize that New Testament history was written within a culture where accuracy, historical accuracy, actually mattered. None of these points are in here, I'm sorry, uh, on your thing. This just gave you some space to kind of jot down whatever strikes your fancy. Uh, but don't, don't get thrown off by the fact that Scripture was primarily handed down orally, orally, uh, because this was in a culture that was dependent upon the law of God, and it was a largely illiterate culture that required the law of God to be memorized even by the youngest of their children. This is a culture that was used to passing on information orally and doing so with significant efficacy. They, they were masters at passing on this information orally, even before things were written down, because memorization was such a, a key concept. And then when we get into New Testament time frames, 
We saw that there were people who were paid specifically to write down history. The history of the Greeks and the Romans was, uh, they had their own historians whose job it was to write down facts. And the New Testament was written down into a culture and to a culture, right? Think of some of Paul's letters going to Galatia and Philippi and Colossae and Ephesus. These were major Greco-Roman centers of, of culture at that time frame. You could not write uh, in a general non-historical perspective to these people and expect to be taken seriously at all. Mm-hmm. Do they have any original documents on uh, you know, when to kind of record some of the early debates like leading up to like But that begins to show you that even if it isn't, let's say, a letter Paul wrote, do you have original documents of some of the early bishops in some of those city-states? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the church fathers is how we refer to them. And uh, a lot of the establishment even of the New Testament comes from their their quotations of those sections of the New Testament by means of them using that quotation to establish the discussion that was occurring. So that it is one of the primary sources of New Testament historical information is in those dialogues. And are those originals? Um, I don't know. I don't know if we have any original. I guess because we're talking about a 500-year time frame, more or less, in which they were writing, I don't know if we have any of the original documents of them. The main issue would be that the church would not have seen them as significant as the New Testament text themselves or itself. So to believe that they would, you know, go through great lengths to preserve the writing of these other church fathers, I'm not sure. I really just don't know. I apologize for that. Um, Okay. So I've already alluded to this, so then this should not be new information, that once we've established the information from the New Testament being historical, then we establish that we can find Jesus' accurate statements there. And what do we find? Just a couple to introduce to you in point D here, that Jesus' statements upholding the significance of the Old Testament. In Matthew 5.18, and I'm not going to look it up because I've been more verbose than I was intended, intending on being. I apologize for that. Uh, but in Matthew 5, 18, Jesus says, don't think that I've planned. This is uh, Brad's paraphrase of Jesus, okay? Don't think that I've come to get rid of the law. This is in the Sermon on the Mountain. Don't think I've come to get rid of the law. I'm telling you that not even the tiniest dot or mark, little iota or jot or tittle you might have in your version these, these tiniest points of the actual writings of the Hebrew language, those will not pass away. Jesus wasn't looking at the Old Testament and going, generally speaking, the ideas that are conveyed in the Old Testament are important. That's not what he says, is it? He says the direct opposite of that, that what is written in the Old Testament is so precisely important that even the tiniest grammatical marks that were written down will never pass away away. When you get to millennia nine in eternity, you might spend a few centuries studying one of those tiny marks and its significance. I don't know. But what Jesus is saying is that they're always going to be around because that's how important it is. Number two, just another quick statement of Jesus. 
What you find in Matthew twenty-two thirty-one is that Jesus believed Scripture to be God's speech. And I know that this may seem now, to use your giant word that you've been introduced to, axiomatic. This might just this should seem plain. But Jesus believed that the Old Testament was God's speech. And if Jesus believed that the Old Testament was God's speech, it puts you in a really difficult spot when you start to question whether or not it's the words of man. Just recognize yourself. Even if, even if Jesus was just a really, 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 really smart guy that was really, 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 really more moral than anybody else around, and he wasn't as significant as we believe that he is, even if he was just a big deal, he believed the Old Testament was God's speech. Hmm. That ought to be significant. So to establish that uh, for yourself is an important concept. Lastly, I want to introduce or, or discuss about what we see in Scripture, why it's so unique is its unity. In point one, there are 40 authors who wrote over a period of time of 1,500 years. 40 different authors wrote over a period of time of 1,500 years. Um, we don't know precisely uh, how many people wrote the Quran, but I can guarantee you that it was less than 40. Uh, there's still some discussion amongst um, Islamic scholars. Uh, if you look at, it's a little bit easier because uh, it's happening here in the States, but let, let's say the Book of Mormon, how many people wrote that down? We're, we're looking at one guy. You know, what, one guy. It, what, what we have in the scriptures is 40 different people writing over a span of 1,500 years. And yet, what becomes clear as you start to study it more and more is point A, that you have but one author, one author speaking through many writers. This is where we get the idea uh, of the inspiration of Scripture. It's important that you at least are familiar with the, the concept of the inspiration of Scripture. That the inspiration of Scripture refers to the fact that all of the words of Scripture, all of the words of Scripture have God behind them. Yes, they were written by 40 different hands. Yes, they were written over a span of 1,500 years. But as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, one of the most significant verses in studying bibliology, is Paul writes that all scripture is, and then the Greek word that he uses is theopneustos. Let's pull it apart because you probably ought to be able to do this grammatically speaking. Theos is a reference to, I heard somebody say it, nailed it, God. Theos is a reference to God. And when we say pneumatic, what are we talking about? Breath coming in, in and out, right? If you get a pneumothorax, that's really bad. You got breath that's supposed to be going in the lungs, going into the thorax, right? A pneumatic or a pneumatic bicycle pump is moving this breath. All scripture according to Paul. How much scripture? All, All scripture according to Paul is breathed out, has the breath of God behind it. This is significant because uh, with the concept of the, the theological concept of the Trinity set aside, God the Father and God that revealed himself as Yahweh was a spiritual being, having no body. 
So God was not breathing in oxygen and breathing out carbon dioxide. The breath that he's talking about there is the very life force itself of God is coming out. And I hate to use the word life force because Star Wars has destroyed it for life. But the, the force of God, the power of God, the personality of God himself is coming through those words of Scripture. And what we find, and I'm going to do this very quickly, this part very quickly, because it's just a brief internet search away for you if you want to dive in. But what we find in the Old Testament is that there are all kinds of things that were stated, sometimes hundreds, sometimes a thousand years before, that were then fulfilled in the New Testament. Just look at a couple of quick ones here that point A, that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. We find that in Isaiah 7:14, And yet we know that as, and we'll talk more about this when we study Christology, but we know that Mary uh, was impregnated by the power of the Spirit, not by a human being. Point B, that Messiah would proclaim good news to the poor. Good news to the poor. This is significant in terms of what the Jews were expecting from their Messiah. But it was obviously fulfilled. Remember that passage when John's, John the Baptist followers come up to him and go, hey, are you the Messiah or should we look for somebody else? Jesus, who never does what you expect, Jesus could have just been like, yeah, I'm the Messiah. You guys are good to go. Go ahead. You know, we're, we're good. He goes, go back and tell John. And then he quotes this prophecy that I was helping the poor, healing the lame, reaching back into the history that was out there. Instead of just giving him a simple answer, he was showing by his own actions that he was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Point C, similarly or paralleled to this, that the Messiah would offer physical healing. I don't think you need me to argue that Jesus physically healed people. That happened all over the place. The very reason why thousands of people kept coming to Jesus all the time is not just because he was a circus show. It was because the circus show was happening because people that were dying were being brought back to life. People who had had uh, decades of illness were being healed. People were seeing significant healing. Point D, that the Messiah would be betrayed. We know about that one. I'm going to quickly then point to the one that I wanted to talk about the most because it's one of my favorite ones, primarily because it often discusses or comes up in discussions of some theological errors that people have a tendency to make. But if you look at Psalm 22, if you look at Psalm 22, verse 1 probably looks a little bit familiar to you. In Psalm 22, verse 1, we see these words first. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where have you heard those words before? On the cross. Jesus says them on the cross. Now, I don't mean to alienate anybody really quickly, but I am going to say this point that a lot of the times people then make from that conclusion that Jesus was bearing sin so significantly at that point that he was forsaken by God the Father, and that was his true ache. Friends, unfortunately, that's, that can't be true. For if Jesus ceased to be part of the Trinity, the Trinity ceased to exist. 
and we will discuss that when we discuss the nature of God. But what Jesus was doing and why Matthew records it, because Matthew was written primarily to a Jewish audience, was doing what we have now come to learn is in an oral culture, the way in which you would reference a psalm is you would quote the first line of it. So everybody knew they didn't have Psalm 22 back that point. They had, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And everybody at that point, their mind, if they had studied the Jewish history and memorized this psalm would look at what was going on inside that psalm. Let's read it real quickly. What did Jesus want those people crucifying him to be thinking? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. By night, I find no rest, yet you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel, in our Father's uh, in you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and were delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm. I'm not a man. Scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. If you've studied Matthew's version of the crucifixion, you're starting to see the same words. Matthew said, describes them that they were wagging their heads at Jesus as he was on the cross. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Didn't the centurions say that? If he thinks he's the son of God, why doesn't he bring himself down there? Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I've cast from my birth. From my mother's womb you've been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue stinks, sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. Weird. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they what? cast lots. Friends, who wrote this down according to the title at the beginning of Psalm 22? David. Did any of this stuff ever happen to David? Not that's recorded in the rest of the Old Testament. The crucifixion of Jesus is being described I don't actually know the specific dating of this, but let's, let's be conservative and say at minimum six to 700 years before it's happening. And Jesus tells those Jews around him, hey, you remember Psalm 22? Look at what's going on around you. And do you notice how Matthew describes when you read Matthew's version of the crucifixion? It's at that point at that point, go back and look at Matthew's version of the crucifixion. It's at that point that some Jews started beating their breasts. Why? A sign of mourning. All of a sudden, they recognized what they had done. It had been told them 700 years prior. They had worked for weeks to memorize this psalm and had forgotten about it until it was right there in front of their face and brought to their attention. The great thing about Psalm 22, and I'll stop reading there for the sake of time, is that it does not end in that dismal picture. 
Instead, as you continue to read Psalm 22, what you recognize is that David says, despite all of this terrible stuff, God is triumphant. Despite being beaten to a bloody pulp and executed embarrassingly in front of a culture and a people that was not his own, God was in triumph on that cross. And Jesus was putting it right in their face by quoting Psalm 22. It's pretty significant when you start to look at the relationship of the Bible to mankind. Let me conclude, because I've gone far longer than I intended to, and I apologize, but I obviously you probably can pick up I'm a little bit passionate about this. The Bible is the words of God. And I like saying it that way because I think sometimes we're used to hearing word of God. I don't like cheapening it so much. I want you to recognize that the very words themselves are significant. The words of God, though they are given through man. Point B, the story is God's and his restoration of mankind. Don't trip up on the idea that because Jesus loves you, that this is all about you. The, the beautiful thing about God is that it's not all about you, but you get to be a part of this giant restoration story that has been written down for us to read. Scripture is unique along those lines of providing that information. The next couple of weeks, just so that you know where we're going, is... Uh, I'll try to remember off the top of my head here. Next week, what we will talk about is, okay, now that we know that the Bible is so unique, I don't know if you know that there's some disagreement amongst versions of Christianity, different denominations, some believing some groups of the Bible to be uh, the Bible and others believing more biblical books need to be added in. We'll want to discuss that issue is that what actually constitutes the Bible and then we'll talk also about why do we have different versions of the Bible. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit about the history of how the different versions came to be and what backs them up. Then on the third week, what we'll discuss, it, primarily we will discuss the issue of is the Bible without error? Is the Bible inerrant is the term that we'll discuss. And what does that actually mean to claim that the Bible, I'll just jump ahead for those of you that need the answer to that. Yes, it is without error. The Bible is inerrant. But we'll talk about what that means and what, what do we do with portions of the Bible that seem to be a contradiction. So we'll kind of discuss that component. That's where we're going. So I will pray for you and then I will turn you loose. Thank you for letting me go a little bit longer tonight. God, we are unworthy of that book. I apologize for the times I take it for granted. But hopefully tonight, what you have planted in our hearts is a recognition that we have something that is more special than anything else that we could spend time with. May we worship you, not by worshiping the book, but by using the book to understand you better. And may, as a result, we reflect you more accurately to this world that so desperately needs you.
take our efforts and use them this week and bring us back safely that we might study some more. Amen.